Uh, some of you might be very aware uh, that Lori and I had a difficult week. Um, Noble, our youngest, who's uh, three years old, a little over three years old, um, we thought he had maybe rolled his ankle and sprained it or maybe even broken it. Uh, so we took him to the doctor, the pediatrician, they took some x-rays, didn't look like anything was broken, so they thought maybe he was sprained his ankle. A few days later, the pain got a little worse and he had a fever, and so we took him to the emergency room and we asked, okay, what's going on? We can't seem to get any peace or rest for this kid. They took another set of x-rays, thought maybe it was broken. There's a little trauma to the bone, so maybe it was broken, and sent us home with some pain medication. The next day it was really bad, and I called my brother-in-law, who's an ICU pediatrician in Des Moines. I said, this doesn't check out. He's not getting any better. My brother-in-law looked over the numbers um, as we talked about the symptoms, and he diagnosed him over the phone and said, no, there's an infection in his ankle. You need to have an MRI done. So we took him to ORA, had some MRIs done, and sure enough, there's an infection in that little boy's ankle. And it was deep enough into the ankle and into the bone that they had to do surgery. So uh, Wednesday night, uh, or Tuesday night, I can't remember, it all kind of runs together now, maybe it was Tuesday night, Wednesday night, he had a surgery on his ankle and flushed it all out. Now all of the, all of the infection is gone, they flushed everything out, they're able to get it all out of the bone and everything, it's wonderful, uh, but he had to have a couple of other um, procedures done, they were trying to stick some IVs in him, unfortunately nine tries later they weren't able to get one in. Uh, so the little boy was poked nine times in one day, and that's a lot for a three-year-old. Eventually, they had to put a pick line in his shoulder so that they could get the proper antibiotics into his blood system. Uh, they've got the, the right antibiotics targeted specifically for the infection that he has, so he's doing really, really well now. In fact, he's passed all the, the big hurdles. And, and you know there's times when your kids are sick, and it just it tests your faith. I mean, it really does. You're sick, it tests your faith to a degree. Your kids get sick, man, it, it really pushes on your faith. And you have all of these reports from different doctors coming in, and it could be this, and it could be that, and infectious disease comes in and talks about the issues if it spreads to his bone and his bone marrow and how bad that can get, and if it affects his growth plate and the issues that could happen there and issues, long-term issues with not being able to walk right and his foot not growing correctly and all kinds of things, and it can just mountain, mountain, mountain test your faith. And it's hard. It is hard. It's difficult. But in those moments are when we have to kind of decide to turn towards God and turn towards the Bible and turn towards the scriptures and, and what does God promise us? And as a pastor, I'm never going to tell you something that isn't true about our life. It was difficult. I'm not going to lie. There were moments where I wanted to just sit there. Whatever the doctor says, that's it. I don't have to consult anyone else, no prayer about it, whatever the doctor says. And some of that is good and some of that's bad because you can get caught. You can get caught in a spiral that is just whatever the doctor says is going to be the outcome and there's no hope in that at times. And not that doctors are bad people. They're trying to give you the best case or the worst case scenario so that they don't get sued and everything else, but it can turn into this spiral of thoughts and plaguing ideas. And so at some point, you just gotta dig your heels in and say, okay, God, we know what the facts are, but we also know what the truth is. The truth of the word of God says that little boy's healed. His mother's been praying over him since he was a baby, that he is healed and that he is full of health. And it didn't look like, and it looked like it could get pretty bad, but we're thankful that he's on the mend, that he is healing. He's healing quickly, and hopefully they've got everything targeted down. If his numbers continue to decrease, he'll be home by Monday or Tuesday. So we're very, very thankful for that. And for all of you that were praying for him, thank you so much. For those of you that didn't know, well, it's just kind of 
part of life. You go through some difficulties from time to time. But pray for our family. Pray for Lori. She's exhausted. She's been up there, obviously, every day since and slept up there, won't leave his side. I'm trying to get her to come home tonight to take some rest. I don't think I'm going to be very successful. That mama bear kicked in, and she ain't going to leave that kid's side. Uh, but we love the fact that we know that we can rely on so many people praying for us, so many people agreeing, so many people praying the scriptures, and we know that uh, obviously there's a good outcome in that. So thank you for that. So let's get into the meat of the message today. Heart and soul, we're in week three. Uh, the vision of Grace Family Church, you heard it this morning and hear it again. Uh, our church exists to bring people into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that equips and empowers them to become who they were created to be through an authentic life of faith. We went over that in week one. The mission of Grace Family Church is to be a strong, positive, spirit-filled, legacy-building organization. We talked about that line or those groups of words last week in little in-depth that believes in the power of Christ to transform lives, that should go without saying. It's contemporary in nature and so compassionate that people are drawn from every area of culture into a loving circle of hope where answers are found and acceptance is given. Now this is where I wanna hang the hat today. This concept that we are so compassionate that we are drawing people from every area of culture. We should not be folks one, who are so glum in their religious service that all we have is a frown on our face and say, oh, I love Jesus. You frown on your face, this, this religious kind of station that says, I've got to go through all the religious rites in order to be okay with God, so I'm doing my religious duty, and that's all it's about. It's not really about love and grace and mercy. But we should be those who are so compassionate that it doesn't matter if we agree with each other's ideology, we're on your side. That it doesn't matter if you come from the same background that I come from, we're on your side. That it doesn't matter what your skin color is, we're on your side. That it doesn't matter if I even accept your lifestyle, we're still on your side. There's a sense of compassion that should come from God's people that says, I don't care where you're at or where you're from, I don't care what you're going through, that we wanna be there for you. We help draw you. And the Bible's real clear. Jesus actually said these words that we are called to go to the highways and byways and draw them in. That's why this particular line is crafted in our mission statement, that we should be those who are so compassionate that people are drawn from every area of culture into a loving circle of hope where answers are found and acceptance is given. So they're coming for love, hope, answers, and acceptance. Love, hope, answers and acceptance. We want to show the unadulterated love of God to people. We want to be the instrument that shows people the unadulterated love of God. That will draw them in, but there's activity behind that. You can't just say, I love people. You can't just say and pray to God, God show them their love. You have to actually demonstrate it to some degree or another. And that in that loving circle, there's hope that is found, that we give people hope that if People are the currency of heaven. The dealings that we have with the people here on earth is hope, that we are hope dealers, and that, that where answers are found, that folks can come through these doors and they can find answers, that if they're hurting physically, they can be prayed for by a group of believing people and their, their physical needs can be met with 
answers from heaven, that if they have issues, spiritual issues, baggage issues, bondage issues, they can connect with someone one-on-one in a sozo session and get answers for the issues. If they're teenagers, like just went to their classroom here just a few moments ago, that they can find answers for their real life, that our kids can find answers at a level that's appropriate for them for their everyday life, that you can find answers for life's real problems in small groups and in different uh, different ministry opportunities throughout the week, and that hopefully on Sunday mornings, we're giving you some set of answers that you can take to your everyday life and work out on a weekly basis. And then last, acceptance is given. The fact is Jesus accepts everybody right where they're at, as dirty as they are. Jesus accepts everyone. When they come in the door, when they come to Christ, Jesus accepts you just the way you are. But he loves you way too much to leave you that way. It doesn't mean you don't need to repent. It doesn't mean you don't need to come to the saving knowledge of Christ and understand that your sin is ultimately separating him or separating you from him. It doesn't mean that we don't come to a place of ultimate repentance, but Christ accepts you. The Bible's real clear that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's him showing his acceptance that though we were enemies of God, though we sided with God's arch enemy in our sinful state, he still sent his son to die for us. What more does he need to do to show acceptance? So we as carriers of the gospel have a responsibility to show acceptance and love to everyone anyone, that we are so compassionate that we are drawing people from every area of culture, every area of culture. Listen, there is not a group of people that I ever want to see cut off. Now, I know, I know based on who I am, uh, based on, on, on the things that I like and my, my personality, I know that based on a little bit of the music that we play and its style, that we're going to attract some people and not others. I get that. But the fact is the door's open for everybody. I'm not going to play to a niche and say, well, if I just you know, target the, the 65-year-old white group that I'm really going to have you know, success. We're not going to play that game. We're going to open these doors for everyone and anyone who wants to come in. We're going to open the doors for anyone and everyone who needs to experience Jesus, that we are drawing all people from every area of culture. And I can tell you factually that that has happened. We have folks who have come through the door and are part of our church that are rich, they're poor. We have folks that have come through the door that have been in church forever and folks that have come through the door and have never stepped foot into church. We have had folks that have have all kinds of legal trouble following their lives and folks that have everything just buttoned up so tight it looks like their life is perfect. We have folks on every single side of the spectrum. And we want to continue that because that shows that we're doing the work of God and what he's called us to do. Walking with God and experiencing his love and power is what we're called to. That we literally walk alongside the creator of the universe and we experience his unadulterated love and power. That we experience the presence of God so uniquely that we know he loves us individually, yet so magnificently that we experience his power in our everyday life. And that we understand that this love and power is available to everyone that there's nothing that cuts off one person or another from experiencing what we experience, that there's nothing that cuts off another person from the healing aspect of God and this person is shunned, that there's nothing that cuts off a person from the love of God, yet this person is put away, that there's nothing that cuts off a person from the grace of God, yet this person can't experience it. We know that all people come to experience all the facets of who he is. 
And the questions we have to start asking ourselves, if this statement is real, what kind of solutions do we want for our life? Do we want natural solutions to go at a problem in a natural manner, to do the math and to have all the data points down and to know the answer because we've done all the work? Or do we want supernatural answers? There was a point in time this week where if we would have stuck to the natural data, the fact is Noble would be probably sick and getting sicker. The likelihood is if we had stuck to the natural data, we'd be believing that later on in his life he's going to have multiple surgeries because his growth plates are probably going to be affected and there's no way the doctors can do anything about that right now and he's just going to have to suffer and deal with surgery after surgery after surgery. We could get caught in that mix because it's out there somewhere. It's written on a piece of paper that this could possibly be the reality. And the, the natural solution is to just start planning for the inevitable future. Yet there is something supernatural for those of us that are in Christ that says, no, it's okay that that's the truth. It's okay that those are facts, but there's a truth that's higher. It's okay that those are facts of his case, but there's a truth that's higher and it's found in scriptures and the promises of God. And we don't have to be caught up in what is natural. We don't have to be caught up in what is the norm See, the fact is we have to start to ask ourselves whose direction do we esteem more highly, our direction or God's direction? Do we esteem more highly the path we want to take or his path for our life? Do we esteem more highly the, the vein or the avenue that he wants to run in or the vein or avenue that we want to run in? Which part of this life do we esteem most highly? what God's called us to do or what we want to do. The path that he's carved for us or the path that we're trying to force on our own. And this is what it is to draw people. I'm gonna make a roundabout here and it's gonna maybe be a little bit hard to part together, but the reason we, we crafted this line that we are drawing people from all areas of culture is because that's an active statement. That's not something we passively sit by and hope happens someday. That's not something that we sit by and pray and hope that God just facilitates, that people are drawn from all areas of culture because it just poof, happens one day. No, it's because the people of God here every week are empowered to go out and to reach their sphere of influence, to reach those that are close to them, to reach those that are far from Jesus and pull them in because we are active in the mission and the vision that God has given us. This phrase that people are drawn that's connected to our mission is probably the most supernatural phrase in our mission and our vision statement. It doesn't say anything of the Holy Spirit. It really doesn't say much of God other than his drawing power. And it's probably the most supernatural phrase in the entire mission and vision because it focuses on others, because it focuses on those far from God, because it focuses on those in our community who aren't here in Sunday morning services. It focuses on those who are in our community who are lost, who are dying, who need the relief of the gospel, yet they haven't had anyone present. They haven't had anyone woo them. They haven't had anyone call to them. And so our mission is that we would be those in obedience to draw them in. That we have a responsibility as those who are obedient to the gospel to speak to our community, to speak to our, our area of influence and call them in. But what does that look like? 
Well, it's simple obedience. It's connecting to the mission and vision first that God gives you as a person and second to the community of believers that you belong to, the mission and vision of the church. That at some point, this becomes real to you, that you want to see people drawn from all areas of culture into a loving circle of hope where answers are found and acceptance is given. That, that resonates with your heart to such a degree that you want to see it happen and you activate it in your own life. Obedience releases ministering spirits on our behalf. And I'm gonna talk about our behalf first. I'll talk about a, a different aspect of our own behalf later on in the power and the presence of God. But there's a fact that when we step into what God's called us to, when we step into his mission and vision, when we step into the mission and vision for an organization that we're called to like a church, that something happens supernatural. Hebrews chapter one and verse 14, as I told you to turn to earlier, says, are not all ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Meaning that the angels of God are ministering spirits. They're sent to serve those of us who are inheriting salvation. Those of us who are heirs to salvation. And earlier on in the chapter, he said, regarding angels, he says, he sends his angels like winds, his servants like flames of fire. That the angels, that the angelic presence, that that spiritual presence that we feel in the air and in the ether sometimes that we just can't quite put our finger on, that spiritual motivation that's out there that we feel accomplishing the will of God for our life and we see it pressing through the mess and the muck and the mire. There's something that goes in front of us and we can't quite figure out what it is that at times we term it luck and at times we term it right place at the right time, but we know there's something spiritual behind it, that there's a reason that's there. That as we, as we commit to the will of God, as we commit to mission and vision, as we commit to being obedient, that he can't help but give us aid to our cause, that he can't help but give aid to the fight. And in fact, in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36 and 37, we see where ministering spirits literally aided the fight. Then the angel of God arrived and struck the Assyrian camp, 185,000 Assyrians died. By the, end, by the time the sun came up, they were all dead. An army of corpses, the king of Assyria, got out of their fast back to Nineveh. That the, the, the God of the universe sent his armies to fight on behalf of his people and they overcame the enemy to such a degree that 185,000 men were just wiped out in one evening. Now, this is not to say that if you start praying and doing God's will, that you can say, God, go kill my enemies, and he's going to send angels to lynch your enemies. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this idea that God is so empowered that whatever obstacle would stand in front of you accomplishing his will, that whatever obstacle would stand in front of you accomplishing the mission and vision that he's called you to, whatever would stand in your way in accomplishing the vision that God put before you, the destiny, that he will literally send help to displace that barrier, to blow up that wall and to scale and to move that mountain. That we have a God who will, who will put in front of us a fighting army to take land that we can't take on our own. That when you're connected and committed to vision and mission, your own mission and vision, mission and vision of an organization, that God will give you the resources to overcome in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 12, and it says this, uh, then he said, don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request have been heard in heaven. I have come in answer to your prayers. An angelic visitation 
comes to Daniel in a time where he is tested, he is tried, he's trying to do what God's called him to do, and he seems to be an utter failure, and he's calling out to God, God is, what is my next step? What am I here for? What am I supposed to do? And the angel comes and says, you don't think your prayers have been heard, but I, I, I can honestly tell you God hears them. And you don't really think there's relief coming, but guess what? I've come, I've showed up to bring the relief that you're looking for. This angelic visitation was because Daniel was stuck trying to fulfill mission and vision, what God's called him to, and he pressed on and pressed on and pressed on in obedience to God's will, and God said, listen up, boy, I'm going to give you some relief. Here's an angelic visitation. Here's a ministering spirit to come and to show you the way and the path to give you the answer. See, I think sometimes we get caught. We get this idea of mission and vision in our head. God's given us a personal mission and vision. I don't know what that could be for your life, but whatever it is, you feel it resonant in your heart and your soul. And then there's, there's corporate mission, mission and vision. You have a mission or vision statement like we have. And you hear words like uh, we're, we're called to draw people from every area of culture into a loving circle of hope where answers are found and acceptance is given. And you might get lost in the idea, well, how am I supposed to accomplish that? How am I, the individual, supposed to help spur on that mission or vision? How am I, just, a, uh, just an everyday congregant person, how am I supposed to be an advocate for that mission and vision? You're not supposed to know all the answers. You're not supposed to understand all of the twists and turns in the journey. You're not even supposed to have all the strength to get it done. The Bible's real clear here that when we get into God's mission and vision, that he will make a way literally through the supernatural power that he has, through, through supernatural armies that will displace our enemies, that will gird us up and give us strength for the journey. He literally sets us into a position where those who are called to serve us, these angelic beings go before us. In Matthew chapter four and verse 11, it's a testing and trial of Jesus in the desert where Jesus was literally tested of the devil. He's been fasting, he's hungry. The devil tempts him and says, listen, you can do miracle workers, son of God. Why don't you turn that rock into bread? And he starts to respond in this very biblically based way and says, no, no, man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that falls from the mouth of the father. And Jesus is, man, he's the son of God. He's got it all together. Yet we read in Matthew chapter four and verse 11, when the test was over, the devil left and in his place, angels Angels came and took care of Jesus' needs that we can get so mission and vision focused and oriented that at times it's depleting and it's hard and it's difficult that you can get so mission and vision oriented for your own life that at times you need supernatural help just to make it another day. You know what it's like. You've been through the fight. You've been through hell. You've had that week where it's just ridiculously hard to deal with, and you know you're on the right track. You know you're doing what God's called you to. It's not like you're doing something that's far from the will of God. It's not like you're involved in something that isn't what God's called you to. You know, you know, you know you're where you're supposed to be, yet life gets hard. Stay the course, and he'll call those angels from heaven to even come and to minister to your very needs. And then in Psalms chapter 34 and verse 7, the angel of the Lord encompasses those who fear him, and he delivers them. The angel of the Lord encompasses or surrounds those who fear God and he delivers them. 
The Lord delivers them. This issue of fearing God we see all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, if, if you really look into the language and how it's written in the Hebrew, and I don't have time to parse it all out for you today, but, but it's not this idea of, well, ooh, I gotta be afraid of God, he's gonna get me, or oh, he's that God like Zeus and he's gonna throw lightning bolts on those who offend him, or oh no, he's, he's a God who I, I, I can't, if I offend him in any way, shape or form, he's, he's gonna turn his back on me. That's not what it's talking about. This fear of the Lord is, is more akin to a, a word picture that if you were to walk into a, a dark room and flip a switch and, and you think you're the only one there in the room, but then you see a figure in the corner and all of a sudden it startles you and, you, ooh, someone else is here. That's the akin to the idea of the fear of the Lord that in every situation the light switch is, it goes on and, ooh, all of a sudden you find out there's someone else present. That in your hurt and your pain, ooh, there's someone else there in the corner. That in your successes, in all of your mountaintop moments that you can flip the switch and, oh yeah, God was with me the whole time. That there's a distinct difference in fearing the Lord of retribution or fearing the Lord out of an attitudinal change or position change because you recognize he's been with you the whole time. That the angel of the Lord encompasses those who fear him and he delivers them. But if we're to feel the delivering power and presence of God, if we're to feel the angelic presence of God close in our midst, in our heart, and in our life, it's because we've set out to do his will. That obedience literally gets behind it a push from the supernatural, a push from the spiritual, a push from something that's out of this world, that's above this world's understanding. That when we are honest with ourselves and that we do the will of God, reach people, change lives, fulfill the mission and vision, that something comes behind us to undergird that because now our focus isn't self, it's someone else. Now our focus isn't our own, our own selfish issues, but it's what God's called us to. The second, thing I, the second point I want to raise is that when we are obedient, physical obedience, when we do what God's called us to do, it releases spiritual power from God. James chapter four and verse six, it says, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Doing what God says to do is one of the most humbling things you can do in life in general. Fashioning your life around his vision and mission is one of the most humbling things you can do ever on planet earth. It's one of the hardest things you can do at times as well. We have this idea of humility is, is someone who could boast and have a big chest. Someone like Michael Jordan, man, who could just boast and boast and boast about his athletic accomplishments, but he sits there in an interview and lets people throw accolades on him and doesn't get a big head, or at least it appears. We have a version of that. That's what hum, uh, humility looks like. When folks are, are throwing you all kinds of accolades and you sit there and you, yeah, take it, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm a good guy, but kind of downplay it. That's not humility. Not even scriptural humility. Humility is acting upon and exalting God's will above mine. True biblical humility is saying, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, your will be done through me. Bring heaven to earth through me that my selfish will would die and your will would rise. True humility is a moment-to-moment -moment activity where we set aside what we want to do and we do what God calls us to do. Now, I'm not saying it's so crazy spiritual that, you know, you sit down for breakfast and what should I have today, Lord? Cheerios or Frosted Flakes? Like, it's not the point. You know, there are some things that matter to God and some things that are ancillary. God wants you to be healthy 
And if your cholesterol's super high, eat the Cheerios. At least that's what their commercial tells us. Humility is about acting upon and exalting God's will above our own. Mission and vision fall into this category of being humble. Some people have big mission and vision statements. They're going to conquer the world. They're going to make all kinds of money. They're going to have a big house and a big car. It has nothing to do with what God's called them to. Not saying he's against any of those things. See, that's what some of you heard initially was that God's against some of that stuff, some of those rewards. God's not against any of those things. He's against your motive if it's wrong. If your motive is simply to get stuff, to amass stuff, and have more stuff, he's totally against that. If your mission in life is to go and to accumulate money or wealth because you want to be a conduit for the gospel, he's all for it. He's all for you accumulating position, influence, as long as there's a purpose behind it. But if you just want to be top dog in your company, he's got nothing to do with that. If you want to, if you want to gather and cultivate intelligence and insight and wisdom and, and data, degree after degree after degree, and you want to do that just to show off a couple of pieces of paper hung on a wall, he's not into that at all. But if you want to use that as influence for the gospel, and for the gospel's sake, and he's totally for it. When we have a mission and a vision that God's called us to, a path that he's carved out for us, we have to ask ourselves, are we humble enough to put away our will and do what his will is? Are we humble enough to put our will aside and do his will? Are we humble enough to say, God, your will, not mine? This is how Jesus taught us to pray. We all have familiar with the Lord's Prayer to some degree. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How often do we pray the prayer and minimize what we're really saying? How often do we pray the prayer and minimize that he's directing us towards a mission and a vision, that every time we say it, he's, he's putting in us the seed of obedience and saying, okay, young buck, you, you asked for it. Your will be done. All right, I'm gonna give you my will. Are you gonna go do it? I'm going to give you what the will of God is for your situation right here, right now. But are you going to be true to the word of God and go do it? If I give you the insight, if I give you the keys, if I give you the roadmap, are you going to be truthful and do what I've called you to? Humility is acting upon and exalting God's will above our own. That is why he says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He resists those who want to go it their own way, but he gives all kinds of grace, mercy. He gives all kinds of grace to those who want to do it his way. You know, you can do it God's way and screw up over and over and over again. You can do it God's way and screw up consistently. In fact, when we were sitting there in the hospital with Noble, it's very easy to want to do my will. It was very easy to want to do my will and just say, doctor, whatever you say, go ahead and do it. I'm not going to pray about it. I'm not going to think about it. You just do what you want to do. I could have easily done that. And for some folks, I would have been right in doing it, right? Trust the doctor. They know what they're doing. Of course they do. Of course they do. That's what they're trained for. That's what they're skilled at. But I still have a job to do and pray. I still have a job to do and seek God's face. I still have a job to do and to seek what is the will and intention of God in that scenario. We prayed about it. We believed that the steps we took were exactly what God called us to. In fact, we bucked the doctor really, really hard, Lori and I, as we were praying. The doctor said it's just a mere fracture in his leg. Give him some pain, kill, give him some pain medication. 
And I knew in my heart that wasn't true. So by way of the Holy Spirit, said, I got to talk to somebody else. The next person I knew on the list in my Rolodex, who was very skilled in this, was my brother-in-law we called and asked. And it wasn't within 20 minutes. He knew very well what the issue was. And we got on a better track for healing for that boy. I could have said, okay, doc, you said it. Cast him up. We'll go home. Give us some pain medication. And he would be much worse off today than he was when we first walked in. That's nothing negative against that doctor who saw him. Because there's a difference in all kinds of professions. And the, in the medical community, if, if it walks like a horse and looks like a horse, sometimes it's a zebra. And this doctor doesn't see zebras very often. So he diagnosed, diagnosed it as a horse. You understand what I'm saying? So I had, we had to be clear with our intention. We had to be clear with our, with our motivation, with the will of God. A friend of our families and someone we've, we've had an opportunity to connect with in ministry and just a great, great man had an issue with his heart. And he knew he had an issue. He could feel something physically wasn't, wasn't right, but also the Holy Spirit was talking to him. You got to go to the doctor. This guy does not like to go to the doctor at all. He makes fun of doctors all the time. He hates going to the doctor. It's one of the things that's on his like, list of do not do's. I don't want to go to the doctor. Yet God was telling him, you need to go to the doctor. He goes to this uh, particular cardiologist and gets an exam. They say, you, you look all right to us. He says, Doc, I, I got to disagree with you. Something's very, very much wrong here. God told me to come. The Holy Spirit inspired me to come. I know something's wrong. You need to do another test. So we've got one more test to do, but it's really expensive. Are you sure you want to do it? I don't care how expensive it is. Get it done. They get it done. They find a major blockage. 24 hours later, he's in the operating room having surgery. What would have killed him if he had just listened to the doctor and walked out the door was saved because he said, you know, no, God, I, I've got to put my will aside. He wanted to go home. He didn't want to be in that hospital room. He wanted to go home. He didn't even want to see the doctor, but he needed to do what the Holy Spirit was calling him to do. Get this checked out so it doesn't take your life early. Listen, there are so many things in our life where if we'll put our selfish will aside, God's will will be done in our life. Great and mighty miracles will happen. But we've got to get to the point where we get ourselves out of the way. We've got to get to the point where we get ourselves out of the way. God, what do you want us to do? Where mission and vision become all about his intention for our life. This is what it is, in my opinion, to live out that line that we are, that we are drawing people from every area of culture. Because that entails me putting away selfish will. That entails me putting away my selfish want. And that I become a conduit that I become an instrument that draws people from every area of culture into a loving circle of hope where answers are found and acceptance is given. If we are a church that is to be loving and hope-filled, that we are to give answers and that we are to accept people, it can't happen because we sit on the sidelines. It can't happen because we sit idly by and hope that God will bring them in. It happens because we are actively engaged in mission and vision. And because we are, God sets us up as those who are humble. He sets us up as those who are moving after the call, the will, the purpose of God for our life. So there's two things here that as we leave, first, mission matters, vision matters. You need a mission and vision for your particular life. Second thing is very simple. The church mission and vision, it's gotta be something that you ingest, that you take to heart, that becomes real. At some point, it's gotta be something that you say, yeah, I'm motivated by that. The fact is that we call people into the mission and vision so eventually they can have an impact in everyday life. 
We call people into mission and vision in the Grace Family Church, not because we need more hands to the plow, not because we need more people serving in kids' church or serving at the front doors as greeters. We call people to mission and vision because eventually it leads to impact in our community. Eventually you come to a place where you know the saving love and saving knowledge of Jesus, and then you come to a place where you developed in that faith and you know, you know your purpose and your destiny for your life, and then you come to a place that's head on with I have to make an impact. I hope we come as a church to a place where each one of us can't help but put our stamp, our finger on our culture, that if our life were snuffed out today, that there would be a mark that is left on our culture forever, that people would know and they would miss your presence. Each one of us have that ability to be those who are, who are so dedicated to mission and vision that if this life were over, someone would miss you, that your life would be missed terribly because you've invested in the lives of others. See, the fact is everything that we talk about when we talk about mission and vision at Grace Family Church has nothing to do with us, has little to do with what goes on under this roof and much to do with bringing people in. See, we can, we can change locations and it, it doesn't really matter much. We can pick up our tent stakes and move down the road and set up chairs and a stage and a sound system and kids' rooms and it really doesn't matter much the surrounding. It's not the building that matters, it's the people who occupy it. And today I wanna to encourage you, hook up with mission and vision. Create one of your own that is so connected to the will of God that you can look at it and say, God, this, is, this has to be from you because it couldn't have come from me. But second, hook up the mission and vision of the church. Let it be a motivating factor for you. Let it be something you think about and read about and, mo and, and motivates you. It's easy to get off track. It's easy to have good intentions in life and get off from what God's ultimately calling you to. It's very easy. Life happens so quickly, so fast. One day at a time, it's easy to just get moved off course. This morning, I hope I've inspired you enough to ask God the hard question. God, God what do I need to do to move back on course? What do I need to do to move back in the direction you've called me to? What do I need to do? Forget money, forget time, forget security, forget all those things. What, what do I need to do to be moved back into the vision, mission you've called me to? Take time today. Write it out, make it plain. Sketch it out in your mind. Connect with it. God, what are you calling me to?